watch Tim wishes you good luck and Godspeed. Space Monkeys, blasting off with Marco Bon, creative technologist, entrepreneur, investor. His projects have covered fashion, data science, business strategy, and more. He's currently building GameDAO and the Zero Network. Marco, welcome to the show. Hey there, what's up? Happy to be here. Super humbling. Looking forward to your questions. Yeah. My first question, I want you to take us way back. I'm curious about your earliest, earliest memories with video games. <laughs> yeah, my earliest remembering. Yeah, sounds crazy, but it's actually Pong. I don't really remember what kind of uh, machine it was because I was just too young, but my stepfather brought home like a, a Pong from one of his friends. And it was kind of like one of the first moments where I really experienced it firsthand. And luckily it went on with Lucky Boy uh, to get a ZX81 <laughs> as a present for birthday. It was kind of my sixth birthday. Wow. And there I started like, uh, yeah, digging deeper into whatever it was back then, like computing and games and stuff like that. So video games have always been a mainstay in your life, uh, somewhere where you put a lot of your time? I'd say um, along my lifeline, it's not like a constant topic, to be honest, because of course you have like different eras in your life where you think about other stuff. But I would say like for you know, a big part of my life, uh, video games always have been kind of like a driving force, uh, sometimes as a gamer, sometimes as a game creator, hmm. uh, sometimes also as an observer. It's kind of like a super interesting area of basically many disciplines working together. What were some of the early attempts to build games and, and what's been your experience building games uh, so far? I'd say actually started like somewhere in the 80s uh, during this yeah, super hype 8-bit computing era where you had like all these things like bread bins, like the old Commodore 64 or the Plus 4, hmm. later on different machines like Amigas and so on. And during that time, we started like just like as a bunch of geeks in, in school um, working with these machines and trying to replicate games uh, we played ourselves, like for example, on a Nintendo, you had like whatever, Super Mario. Yeah. And then we started, of course, like recreating jump and run games uh, just to feel it how it is. <laughs> but compared to nowadays where you have such complex tech, it was, of course, like much, much simpler. What sort of challenges are being faced in the traditional gaming market today? Like you say, it's more complicated. Then it sounds like you needed a few guys to make a game. But can you tell us a little bit more about what it's like to make a game today? I'd say like uh, altogether, maybe the end-to-end -end experience from an outside point of view is maybe not that different. Okay. Uh, so for example, you have people who come up with an idea, then they maybe build a prototype or not, depending on what their kind of logical next step, like in startups, for example, would be. So do they have a funding? Maybe they don't have funding. Then, of course, you need to talk to people and try to convince them of your idea. Then you build the thing. <laughs> and uh, then hopefully you finish it and find along the way people who would support it and give you an audience of people who would be really interested and even buy the game. Mm. But of course, like back then, there weren't like many people creating games in general. There weren't also like many, for example, tool chains or platforms where you could release a game or even publishers. That's also like the time where the big players of, of today were like born. Nowadays, the big difference is, of course, you have like almost endless amounts of creators who potentially could create something really good. You have like tools like Unity or Unreal Engine. Mm. 
And uh, of course, like many other like web-based engines where people can just dig in, have a community, have documentation and basically learn along the way. Mm -hmm. And then they can create something like a prototype with a cool idea and go and find supporters for that, be it like a publisher, be it just a community if you're an indie, and then try to, of course, sell your product in, in one way or the other. In, in general, that's what I say, like the process is roughly the same, but of course, like the competition, the technology, the outcomes changed quite a bit and also the dimensions. Yeah. So if you look into the market now, you easily see double A, triple A titles easily reach like budgets from blockbuster movies. Yeah. You have like seven, eight digits as a really small budget for a game production. Yeah. Wow. This is kind of like one of the main things which change. But of course, like if you look at the entire planet in business, all the budgets scale up quite a bit. So do you think there's still a healthy market for independent games? I totally believe so. But it's also up to the indie game creators and indie gamers to maybe consolidate their force to be stronger and to get, for example, better perception in the market. I guess it's super, yeah, pretty much alive and kicking. And maybe even like, like in other subcultures, you always have like the mainstream and you always have subcultures, yeah, like in music, in art and so on. That's the same like for, for gaming in general as well, I would say. Just depends a bit on what you're aiming for. What do you think that blockchain adds to this mix? I mean, from the AAA games all the way down to indie games, what does blockchain enable in gaming that wasn't available, let's say, 10 years ago? I honestly believe there's, there's much more to come. And we're just like in this early, early adoption stage where, of course, many people benefit from, I don't mean it in a disrespectful way, but mm -hmm. uh, you have like low-key games. And you have like very easy protocol patterns on the web free side. And this enables like a very easy way to create value for people who use something like that created. Yeah. So for example, like a hyper casual game where you farm a certain resource or you, or you play like card game or something like that. That's not the only part of gaming. That's just like a little fraction and maybe not the most favorite fraction. If you look at this from a traditional gamer perspective. Yeah. The big advantage is that Web3 enables independence and transformation. These are kind of like two outcomes which you can or cannot assign as attributes or whatever potentials which you can do or achieve with uh, using Web3, whatever it means. Yeah. So uh, how would you like bring transformation, for example, into gaming? Of course, you have the opportunity to create very simple protocols which give you upsides, which are generated, for example, out of DeFi and so on. Mm -hmm. Again, that's not really the upside, which is the, the opportunity for gaming. The transformational aspect is more like uh, currently you have like a very big industry, which is over 200 billion in revenue created by over 3 billion players. And all of this revenue and value is, is kind of like stuck in a very centralized environment. Yeah. So everything along the chain is centralized, like distribution, creation. You have very few like tool chains, which really work. You have few publishers. Of course, it's a bit overstressing this aspect, but also it's kind of a lock-in. And that's maybe one of the reasons why we have such a lively NFT, let's say, movement in the gaming industry is like the aspect of ownership. And this part, and uh, this is what you see, for example, with projects like uh, XD Infinity and related, this can be a driver for, for a change in how you create games and what the outcomes are for a player. Mm. But as I said before, like, Currently, this is only used for, for DeFi-like and farming-like mechanisms. So it's a bit sad for the games that we don't 
innovate better to create, for example, new types of games, which create new types of narratives, which really enable something new. For example, like the business design itself and, and the ownership of, of IP. Yes. This is, from my point of view, the opportunity really that in simple terms, gamers can become co-owners, for example, of games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Like one aspect which doesn't resonate with so many traditional gamers, but it's kind of important to see that if you're living in, in a land of centralized stakeholders, then these will always dictate the outcome of whatever you do in these environments. The narratives can be really nice, but at the end of the day, you will always have the same kind of downside in this whole aspect that you spend enormous amounts of time into ecosystems and you spend enormous amounts of money into these ecosystems, but you cannot take away any of this. And also you have no way apart from not buying a game or whatever, writing something in a forum and maybe getting a star for it. Ah, yeah, you wrote 10 posts to have kind of like a reasonable way to approach your team and make them consider a change in, in their idea or, or strategy, how they implement a game. If for creators, the incentive is always to uh, satisfy a venture, yeah, to get money to produce it. And uh, on the other end, to be forced to monetize the user base, then of course the overarching business model and the outcome of, for example, economies inside of games no matter if they are small or big, will always be built in kind of a similar way. And that's a big opportunity for Web3 at this point that you can change the ownership structure, you can change the decision structure, the governance, and the way business innovation can take place. So for example, if you have a new type of, of game idea, which usually wouldn't make it because there is no easy way to monetize the user base, then you also would not find investors. But maybe it's a kick-ass narrative people would love to see and they would even invest into it in a certain way and support uh, this idea to be realized. And that's kind of the big opportunity, of course, that with Web3, however it looks like, you would be able to create such systems, such protocols, which can be utilized by both sides. Just listening to you there about the idea of distributing ownership of games, that really seems like something important, especially as people lose themselves into metaverse situations to have kind of a decentralized ownership rather than just a few people dictating the sort of lives people can live in these games, right? Yeah. Of course, like everybody building in metaverse or building metaverses, however you coin it, yeah? So building based on this theory or thesis or if you call it cyberspace or whatever or second life. Sure. I mean all of us builders of course we have more or less certain types of visions we would like to implement and those who are like the native web free type of mind then of course you would like to see democratization of certain things yeah. and enabling people to create something new. Then on the other end you see a company like Meta, Facebook to promise you something like, oh yeah, we're going to build the next generation metaverse. Mm-hmm. And of course, everybody's on one end like afraid, but on the other end, uh, kind of amused. Yeah. Because they think like they're never going to make it because people who are like genuinely interested into this realization of, of this vision, they know it cannot work like this. Mm-hmm. I guess at this point, the funny aspect is that even people who are already building still discuss it in a way that it is a centralized system somehow. I just saw like a podcast recently. They were discussing like 
philosophically uh, what the metaverse would imply and so on. Yeah. And somehow they came up with topics like, oh, yeah, what happens if uh, whatever you have all these um, dead people's NFTs in the spaces hanging around who's <laughs> cleaning up all this crap? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Right. But uh, on the other hand, I was really surprised that they never mentioned something like, how would governance look like if you change a vision like a metaverse from being operated by a meta into something operated by everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So what is really the change? The change is possibly like one aspect before you had like one corporation, which rightfully has the interest to maximize their profit. Yeah. That's kind of by design. We're living in this capitalism and the most company forms are designed in a way that you, you work for profit. Yeah. Yeah. So they try to find ways how to make profit and therefore they monetize whatever their user base. And people use it in a way, and this is what you saw with Facebook and all these bigger social media, they use it in a way it's like federated or liberated, like uh, if you live in a country. Yeah, so they, they just use these media with the same kind of like expectations, like it should be lawful, safe, transparent, whatever, but it's not because of course, behind the curtains, you have these uh, whatever data miners lurking yeah. and uh, they want to get your data and monetize the shit out of it. <laughs> Yeah, so that's just one aspect. The opportunity there for Web3 and the metaverse is that governance can be taken over by the people who rightfully should govern something like that, the same way they would take part in governance of the real country Yeah, by voting uh, your government, for example. This should happen there as well. And that's also like the big opportunity for Web3, not only to have like this decentralized economy, but also to have like decentralized governance where people can have their say and design altogether the rules under which they want to kind of live together in this third place, yeah? Yeah, well, you guys put DAO right in the name there. And I do want to dive into how your system that you're building is enabling these new business plans and this decentralized governance. I did notice that at the top of your roadmap, the first thing you guys did was look into how legal DAOs would work within Europe. I wonder if you can give us just a few words on regulation and what you found in that part of the process. That's a really nice question, actually. The decision to build GameDAO came roughly when in 2019, I saw the law in its first kind of like iteration. Yeah. And the guys had like a nice presentation and so on. And then someone in the audience asked like, yeah, but what about a bank account? <laughs> <laughs> so like the classical like web free KO. And they didn't have an answer for that. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it's like, okay, you, you create a legal whatever body, however your construct is. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you only have the downsides of merging both of these words. Essentially, I guess this migrated somehow in something like web free community VC, more or less. That's kind of like one way to do it. But from our point of view, this wasn't really enough. Hmm. So if you look at the market, especially in Europe, I guess it's a very good um, economic environment where you can build because you have kind of like certain types of common rule sets by the market regulators, if you look into that. And uh, these kind of click in over time, hmm. meaning like, for example, how are tokenized assets treated? How are certain types of liabilities treated? Uh, what kind of tokens are allowed? What kind of regulation would apply for these things? Hmm. And so on. It all sounds like very crappy. If you really want to build a real decentralized system, then of course you don't want to comply basically to the rule of a single country or something. Right. That's maybe not the thesis people come up with. Like, yeah, yeah, I want to build something decentralized. Okay, what do you do? Yeah, you deploy a protocol, then you have kind of anonymous people interacting with your protocol then maybe there's 
based on whatever design you choose. Maybe there's opportunity for some bad actor to take over. Uh, maybe there's a protocol flaw, people get ripped off, whatever. You saw it all over the last couple of years. <laughs> and for us, it was incentive enough to think like, okay, how can you make this better? Yeah, so of course you cannot claim like you know it all, but one approach was if we really want to build natively, let's say a blueprint or, or a wrapper for companies which can happen online and offline and would tie in with traditional companies, how can you approach this? How can you solve this? You can say like, okay, time will tell at a certain point, everybody will work with something which is connected to Web3. Okay, you can wait for that. Or you can start like building it out. How would this look like? You need to work with regulators. You need to identify jurisdictions where there are already initial movements to tie in Web3 with traditional, for example, legal bodies. This sounds super boring, but also is super challenging because there aren't many wrappers which are available. So if you go somewhere and say like, ah, I'm going to build like a Web3, whatever company, we want to, to raise money with token and so on. Most jurisdictions don't have an answer for that. There are a couple of jurisdictions who have an answer, for example, Switzerland or Liechtenstein, Germany, and possibly other countries as well. Yeah, but these are the ones where we looked like in depth. And what we came up with is there's theory and there's reality. In theory, I have to admit, I'm a fan of uh, cooperatives. If you look into cooperatives uh, historically, they have a very long history. It's something like a more or less democratic compound, whatever collection, collective of people who agree on common goals and uh, do business together with the goal. One of the goals is to have, for example, a positive upside for every member of this cooperative, which is really good. And also you have like factors like democracy, you have stuff like securities laws and so on, which are covered by cooperative law, which is hundreds of years old. And this is much, much easier to use as a wrapper than, for example, if you use something like a traditional stock company. In a traditional stock company, of course, you have like this traditional, yeah, whatever, from the 50s economic incentive, yeah, build this company, shareholder value, scale it up and so on. And there's not much room for democracy unless you really work hard on, on building a setup for that. And with cooperatives, it's kind of built in. But the reality is that not many jurisdictions are really ready to match, for example, the interests of Web3, for example, of DAOs with the idea of a cooperative. So if you go to a law boutique, whatever, who are like uh, experienced in Web3 topics, they can solve all of the problems you get to create a legal body for your company. But usually you don't get the answer like, yeah, let's build a cooperative. They say like, build a stock company, it's done in two weeks. Or they say, ah, let's build a foundation. It actually, it comes close to something in terms of outcome, what you want to achieve with a DAO. You are able to, for example, dedicate a foundation to a certain kind of like scope. Why does this foundation exist to support or to, to grant people who work in a certain area and to give them support in a financial base, for example. Yeah, and this can be, for example, governed. And that's a good thing. It can be governed by, by a DAO whatever that means nowadays, because most DAOs are just DOs. 
they are not autonomous. <laughs> yeah, there's no autonomous like uh, decision making and stuff. Yeah, yeah they may just be um, O's. Yeah, maybe it's just O's, but in the best case, they are do's and doing is good. <laughs> yeah, so good. that's kind of the positive takeaway. Yeah, but as a matter of fact, there are still no real frameworks to have like a DAO, which can be, for example, controlled by machine. Yeah. All jurisdictions require you to have like a representative. That's not necessarily something bad. Yeah. So you can have like a person, which is the secretary, the president, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are the accountable person in terms of representing the interests of the DAO in the traditional legal space. And that's also the, I guess, the point where people discuss, like, is this really like a DAO? Uh, maybe not, so it's not fully decentralized. If you look at this, like, let's say from a technical point of view, no, you have two chains. Yeah, both chains are kind of like governed by the token holders and uh, you want to bridge them. What do you create in that uh, in that regard? Yeah, so usually it's not the best answer, but it's possibly the way people do it at the moment. They create a bridge, and this bridge is usually pretty centralized, and therefore like bears a lot of risk in many regards, whatever hacking or whatever people running away or, or something breaking down. A lot of value under risk. So you can say like at the current point in time, a lot of answers where it's about like bridging different uh, economies are based on, on a centralized answer. I don't really accept this criticism coming from whatever DAO web free Marxists who say like, yeah, everything has to be decentralized. Yeah, I would love everything to be decentralized too, if it makes sense. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what's the upside in that point? Yeah, so absolutely, you cannot even fulfill the A in DAO. So why why should like the legal body, what, what would it result in? I mean, we are like a, a planet with a certain amount of countries. Yeah, but would mean like now uh, that we have like a legal representation in every country? Is it mm. decentralized then? I think it's really important that you guys are tackling these issues head on because it's going to make game developers feel comfortable, right? Nobody wants to create a game and then suddenly be under regulatory scrutiny by this or that country. So I think that's really important. I want to throw us now over to what you're building and what you have so far. If you want to follow along at home, it's app.gamedow.co. This is your beta web interface right now. If a game developer was interested in creating a game, how would they approach this app so far? The answer is very simple. Currently, they won't. Yes, okay. Of course, uh, everything is transition and um, we're iterating a lot. So the reality is currently we don't have a front end which really works. We have protocols which run on our chain, the zero chain. Uh, so this isn't really decentralized by any means, but the best way for a game creator who's willing to build, for example, a traditional game, which could integrate certain features, which are provided by Web3, whatever it means, uh, would approach us directly and just write an email, <laughs> very traditional or write us on Twitter or whatever space and just reach out to us. And like this, we will just get started, to be honest. Because the essential bit of uh, what GameDAO is to deliver is the aspect of uh, discovery and curation. And this is something where we cannot live up to the standard at the moment because the protocol is not deployed yet on a live network. This means we are in a pre-live stage and this means this uh, discovery and curation is done by us. Mm -hmm. but also has the upside that you would have direct access to top-notch support by our team who will help you to refine in many regards, like on business aspects, on, on token aspects, on integration aspects, APIs and such things. 
in a later stage, of course, these things get more standardized. So if you are a builder building something really new and it's not just another card-based play-to-earn game, then just reach out to us and we will find out how we can help you. Okay, but on the app here, you have a you have a couple ideas here. You have organizations and campaigns. What can you tell us about how those are going to fit into the final vision? That's also pretty simple. So organizations in general, uh, not everybody understands what a DAO is, and maybe not everybody even wants to build a DAO. Yeah, so especially if you talk to traditional game studios, they could imagine most of the time to build uh, something like an account on a certain system. Yeah, that's maybe the understanding. But it doesn't really mean it's decentralized. So from our point of view, it's organization. It's kind of like the common denominator, how people start to work as a creator or even as a gaming guild or as an investment syndicate, how they start to work on game down with the protocol. Mm -hmm. So you invoke basically an organization which has like a, an initial amount of members, can also be one member, can also be like your whole team. Yeah. And these people are kind of the core stakeholders of this yeah, so-called DAO, which also can be enforced to contribute funds. So you can do something like you have 10 founders, every founder will bring whatever 10K, and then you have like a treasury, which you can already govern on wow. with these 10 people. And it's kind of just like the base protocol with the minimal footprint. Yeah, So these people can vote on withdrawals, on spendings, they can add members, they can kick members, stuff like that. That's kind of like the core. On top of that, you have like this governance. Governance means like, of course, you have like different types of, for example, how you spend money, how you decide on what kind of projects you want to have. And that's where like you also have the opportunity in a third module. That's kind of the fundraising module where you're able to invoke certain types of campaigns. So you have like a common treasury, but you segregate like the levels of decision-making because usually you have like a core team or a founder and some co-founders. And of course you have like community and like in, in different, whatever parameters, different types of people who have a different type of understanding on how they could or want to contribute. How do you protect investors in that situation? You know, like say somebody comes up with great vaporware, raises $100,000 and then, you know, doesn't build the game. How do you protect investors in that situation? There are two ways. We are trying to protect people from themselves and of course from bad actors. One part is we are working with whitelisting. This means like there are no unknown entities interacting with the community. So everybody in the system is kind of known. It doesn't mean like we know the identities, but I see. we work with the IDs and, uh, for example, with Kilt Protocol to enable kind of like a, a soft KYC, so which doesn't need you to do a striptease. And like <laughs> this, we have certain type of accountability implied. Right. So there's a reputation system there. Exactly. So we also, yeah, also gamification and uh, we have like different layers of securing the protocols. One layer is of course like staking. So you're only able to access certain types of protocols based on certain type of game token deposits. Mm -hmm. So like this, um, we protect people, for example, flooding the market with stupid campaigns. I would say like a grant is something very easy to, to get your hands uh, a little dirty, but if you really mean to build like a real product, you would possibly go for a fundraising, uh, like a perk campaign. Mm -hmm. And these would look like uh, roughly like this, that as a creator, you create your DAO. Inside of the DAO, you create uh, this fundraising campaign, but you attach to it milestones. And these milestones basically are required 
to be approved by the community. Yeah. This means, for example, if you race 100K and you have 10 milestones, every milestone could be whatever, 10K, and you only get these 10K if you really prove that you deliver. And that's kind of like a very close relationship between you and the community of contributors. Right, right. Because like, you need to be very transparent and you need to be accountable, of course, uh, because if you don't deliver, people can have their say. And in the worst case, you could lose your treasury you aggregated and the remaining funds will be returned to the people who contributed. This is something like in the beginning, we do like with a very simple voting mechanism. And in the next protocol iteration, it will be based on conviction voting, making the fix a bit easier, uh, also to account for voter apathy and, and problems like these. Yeah, just kind of like a very basic uh, version. Later on, we're also working on, on lending protocols, with, for example, uh, game assets as collaterals and in a very late stage, of course, because of regulatory, takes longer, but uh, to have fractionalized shares of the game IP. So then it will be really real game ownership, but at the current state, it's more like you have a very close relationship and we try to make processes transparent and just have the community have their say. Real quick, I want to get an understanding of how GAME, the token, is going to function in all this. So uh, GAME or uh, game, it's a access and governance token. Ah. We try to do like token economics in a very simple way. And we want to segregate interests, of course, uh, because it leads to all kinds of like side effects you don't want to have. Mm -hmm. So game token for us, it's a protection mechanism uh, alignment between the different stakeholders you have on, on game door protocol. So you have usually gamers, creators, publishers, investors, all of them have different interests and you can align them very well if you let them stake game token, for example, for voting and to access certain types of protocols. Okay. So it brings everybody together across the whole protocol under common interests, really. Yes. And uh, they are limited. So there are just 100 million of them. Of course, we cannot have and we don't, don't want to have endless amounts of projects. And <laughs> especially if you think like AA, AAA titles, there might be like bigger interest. So it will be very interesting to see in that regard uh, how this will develop economically. And I saw you guys are launching on Akala to start. Is this on their EVM Plus platform you're going to launch the protocol? Actually, we changed a bit direction. So it's not like we're not building uh, on Akala, but we're building with Akala. Oh, okay. The main reason for us uh, to work with Akala was, of course, it's one of the strongest forces in the Polkadot uh, ecosystem. Yes, sir. And they have one thing which is very reasonable for us, and that's, that's their AUSD. <laughs> right. If you look into a traditional market where people don't want to take risk, they want price stability, therefore you need for, for any type of settlement, you need a stable currency. And um, therefore, we had like the initial thesis was to work on our own a stable token, which is euro backed. Mm -hmm. This is of course complex and costly <laughs> in many regards. And therefore we look like, okay, what are good alternatives, uh, which really makes sense. And of course, building in Polkadot, uh, it makes sense to work with Akala because I'm following them since day one. They are a very strong project. They have a very good uh, economic system and they have AUSD. So the next stage of iteration was like, okay, let's just deploy on Akala, but we are building with pallets. This means like we are integrated very low level and this is very cool because uh, of course they're open for that. But the not so cool thing is that you basically connect two projects very tightly. 
But you guys are building what you're calling the zero network. And this was described as a multi-chain network. Maybe you could tell us what that means exactly. So it's um, when uh, Gavin came up with Polkadot and the concept of relay chains, of course, this was like a fulfillment of many problem domains you think about if you want to build uh, networks of networks or let's say like um, networks which enable totally different token models and systems to interact with each other. This means uh, from the first moment on, for us, the idea was kind of like resonating well. And so the idea was, let's build something like a relay chain for gaming. Because if you look at Polkadot and Kusama, you have parachain concept, you have power threads as a concept, you have bridges. But uh, with parachain slots, of course, there is like a limited amount at the current point in time. And what do you do if there's a massive adoption, for example, from gaming side and everybody wants to connect, let's say, to Kusama? And now you have like whatever, 100 slots on Kusama, and then you have like these 100 chains of people who build whatever collectible games and block all the chains. Yeah. So does it really make sense? I'm not so sure. So the, the thought was, what about nested relay chains? Does this exist? Does this really make sense? Uh, it really makes sense to, to work on something like that and contribute to a rea reality which is built on relay chains, which are nested because you can connect many different chains which have like their own, of course, parameters. And you can create like a vertical which is dedicated to gaming, provide all the necessary primitives to everyone who wants to innovate and build in gaming. And then you bundle them and connect them to Polkadot and Kusama to get all these like advantages of this shared security. Yes, so. that's so cool. I love hearing projects talking about nested relay chains. <laughs> okay, so that's cool. So is Zero Network is going to start as a parachain, I suppose? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, of course, easy to tell this in, as a theory, like, yeah, we like relay chains. They should be nested and <laughs> it scales infinitely. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah. It's, of course, <laughs> lots of work. And uh, so we have to start, like, on the ground and also, like, to support other projects to build better. And we have our parachain plans uh, since, like, a long time. We didn't go for that early because also we wanted to understand better how it works economically. You have like whatever uh, crowd loans, then you don't know like will people really adopt it? What's the upside for the user? Yeah, so like, it's not like about our upside; it's like about sustainability for for people who invest into all of this. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, so now we're like uh, looking for this next opportunity to uh, go for a Kusama slot, and this will be also like the, the starting point for the game protocol, also for the, of course, like token sale of a game token. And then, of course, maybe the next question could be, okay, you're running your own network. It has its own network token. You're running a protocol on top of it uh, with its own token. So how do people get like this zero token, for example? Ah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in that regard, do you want to plan a lot of uh, token sales? Um, hell no, uh, because all of these things have like already so many legal implications. It's really expensive and consumes too much airtime. So from our point of view, the plan is really to actually reward people who believe in GameDAO, who believe in gaming, and uh, of course, like in our early supporters. And the current plan is like to establish a certain airdrop mechanism, which means like people who support GameDAO over time during token launch based on like their, their token holdings get an airdrop uh, in certain type of uh, relation to their holding. And like this, we like hope to incentivize already a, a minimum amount of people 
to, for example, run validators uh, to take part in, in network governance and also, of course, like to, to utilize GameDAO to the max. Well, it's a very exciting project and we'll definitely be keeping up with you guys on this channel, on our new shows, and hopefully we can have you back on Space Monkeys a little further down the line to talk about all the developments. Uh, but Marco, I want to thank you very, very much for coming in today and sharing all this with us. Thanks for having me. Hope to talk to you soon. 